Moncrief on News Talk. Now, every now and again, uh, the Gardaí will announce a drugs haul, and often that will come about or have come about as a result of undercover work. But what actual difference does this make? Neil Woods worked as undercover in the UK for 14 years and was instrumental in many large arrests. Good afternoon, Neil. Afternoon. How do you get picked to go into an undercover squad? Is there some sort of selection procedure? Well, it was 1993 when I started and it was more an accident of circumstances that there was lots of pressure um, put on from the government to the various constabularies to increase their drug arrests. And so I got an attachment to the drug squad because of that. I was a young cop. Um, So it was by accident, really. And then then they suggested I have a go at buying some crack cocaine. And that sort of that day defined the rest of my career and my my life. Right. And so when you're when your commanding officer says you go and buy some crack cocaine, do they prepare you for that? Do they say, well, this is how you should present yourself or you should have a story or anything of that nature? No, um, I I had no idea the first time. I remember knocking on this door and this chap said, what do you want? So you're not a student, are you? I hate students. <laughs> and that, at that point, I thought, actually, I've no idea who I am. Uh, but that'll do. I said, yeah, I'm a student. Um, and he, he said, are you crazy? I've just told you I hate students. But anyway, to cut a long story short, he sold me some crack cocaine. And then he said to me, you take care now. Don't get yourself arrested, which I thought was quite considerate. Oh, but was... for, for the first foot, but that defined the next, you know, the rest of my career, really, because um it was it was a suddenly a new way to get easy easy results, and that first day it was very easy, really. But of course, suddenly organised crime knew there was a new tactic around, and so uh, a few days operations suddenly turned into a few weeks, and then in in no time at all, I was doing no less than six or seven months of some serious undercover work at a time. Yeah, and and so on on each particular. Um you know, uh, operation that would end with an arrest, it, was there a procedure to kind of insinuate, you know, deeper and deeper into particular gangs? Well, yes. I mean, it, it got more and more difficult each time. And what I would do is I would work at the ground level, but then I would work my way up and see how far up I could get in the chain. Um, so, for example, what one of the more infamous gangs that I tried to infiltrate were a couple of steps away from the street level, um, but I spent seven months gathering evidence of conspiracy against them. And they were a very infamous uh, gang called the Burger Bar Boys, which I'm told when I speak abroad that that's a very British name for a, bar, for, a, for, a for a gang. And maybe it is, I don't know. But but they, but they were, you know, I saw the intelligence before that operation and they were very vicious indeed. They were using uh, sexual violence as part of their reputation building. One of them was implicated in seven different murders including the murders of very famous, infamous murders of Letitia Shakespeare and Charmaine Harris in Birmingham. So I, I, over time, I, you know, I infiltrated more and more dangerous gangs, or rather, as I should say, with every passing year I did the work, drug dealing gangs got more and more dangerous. And, and part of that is because of my presence on the streets, actually. Yeah. So, it's, so say, for instance, with the Burger Boys, that how did, who, who did you say you were that you were able to gain their trust and kind of move up the ranks? Well, I pitched myself as somebody who was using heroin and crack cocaine problematically. So I mingled with the really vulnerable people. And in fact, 
I picked upon the most vulnerable people to manipulate because the most vulnerable people are the easiest to manipulate. And if that sounds ruthless, well, you know, what I was doing was ruthless. That's 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 what our prohibition drug policy is about. Uh, but I was making myself out to be a problematic drug user, but also uh, a sort of travelling criminal committing crimes here and there. And so did, did they see you as of some use to them? Yeah, they, they saw me as somebody that they could exploit. They could exploit um, because I was using a lot of drugs problematically. But also... I was I was committing crimes so that they could they, they could sort of fuel that crime and, and take advantage of the things that I was stealing. It's 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 the way it works when you put criminals in charge of drugs, really. Mm. And, and so did you have to kind of somehow demonstrate to them that you were committing crimes? Were you kind of rocking up with a VHS player under your arm and saying, look what I just stole kind of thing? Yeah, I was hanging around with people and doing shoplifting, um, which actually was great fun if, <laughs> if, if I I have to be absolutely honest, um, but of course I had the get out of free jail card, so so I didn't have quite the same sense of risk as some people. But yeah, I was I was stealing things. I was also making friends with people who handled stolen goods and creating for myself quite a complex reputation so that they would trust me because it was very important that they trusted me so that they would deal with me directly uh, and with the increasing amounts of drugs that I that I was buying. Yeah. And did you have to take drugs at any stage to kind of demonstrate your bona fides? Thankfully, I never had to take heroin. Um, that would be terrifying, I, I think, um, for someone with no tolerance. I, I, I once had to pretend to take heroin in, in Brighton when I did an operation there. And I once, I once made a terrible mistake on an operation. Terrible. I made myself out to be a connoisseur of amphetamines, which I'm clearly not. And but it was something to talk about. And one day, this main this main target for this for this operation, uh, a gangster type who was dealing in stolen uh, antiques, stolen cars, dealing cocaine, he said to me, "Hey, you! I've got a present for you here." And he gave me this little sealable bag with extremely strong amphetamine in it. And he picked up on the momentary reticence that went across my face, and I saw the suspicion that flashed across his. So. I thought I'm going to have to have some of this because I'm going to I'm in trouble if I don't. Mm. And I ended up having too much, um, and I was in a, a real state. I had to get back to the safe location. I had to tell my supervisors what had happened, and um, it, it was horrendous. I didn't sleep properly for almost three nights, mind you. My house has never been so tidy. <laughs> I suppose there's, there's an upside there. Also as well, because, you know, as I understand it, you were operating in different parts of the UK. So would the local police force know of your existence there or know much about you? No, they would know nothing about, about me at all. So the operation would be completely separate from normal policing. It would be in a special building, like a secluded farmhouse or something that would be rented just for the operation. None of the cops that were my backup team would be allowed to speak to any other police. And in fact, on the day before the operation started, they would all be given um, a lawful order. And a lawful order is a quite a, quite a significant um, formal thing within British policing. It means you're in trouble if, if you break that order. And the order was they weren't allowed to ask me my real name or where I was from. So I was sort of cocooned even from the cocoon of cops around me and using the same pseudonym as I was to the gangsters on the street. And the reason for that, of course 
is that when you're stuck when you start investigating drugs organized crime the biggest problem you have is corruption and even having those systems in place is an admission of the extent of the corruption caused by drugs policing mm. um how close did you ever come to getting rumbled by some of the people you were investigating well when i was investigating a gang called the bestwood cartel in uh, nottingham I'd about four and a half months into the operation, I'd, the night before, I'd just been interrogated by this gangster with a knife pressed into my groin, which is quite unsettling, I can tell you. Mm. Uh, but the morning after, two of my backup team went off sick. And I, so I was introduced to these two new cops, which I didn't like having new people brought in. But I was introduced to one, shook his hand, I had no problem. The second one, I shook his hand and the hairs just went up on the back of my neck. Everything about this guy screamed wrong, you know, because mm. when you've been working undercover for several months, your senses are fairly fine-tuned and you're very um, aware of any nuances in body language. And this guy, I didn't trust him. So I went to the boss of the operation. I said, I don't trust this guy. And he was great. He excluded them both. And I didn't think much more of it until 12 months later when the notorious gangster Colin Gunn the head of the Bestwood cartel was brought down. Um, it turned out that this police officer I'd taken exception to was an employee of Colin Gunn. He was part of the Bestwood cartel. And it turns out that they'd infiltrated my team much closer than I'd, tra- than I'd managed to infiltrate theirs. Now, this cop, his name's Charlie Fletcher. You can look him up. He'd been in the police for seven years by the time I met him, and he was being paid £2,000 a month on top of his police wages, plus bonuses for good information. Now, the important point is he was paid to join the police, paid to join. Now, in the debrief of that operation, when I spoke to various senior cops, one of them said to me, look, Woodsy, we know this happens. With this much money involved, how can this not happen? And it's important to note that senior police everywhere know the extent that drug prohibition is corrupting our system. My word. And when you would come to the the fruition of an operation and, you know, the police cars whiz out all over the place, arrest a load of people, then in that particular area, does it suddenly become drugs free? (laughs) Well, you know, I was naive enough once to think that there would be an impact from all of that work that I did and all of the times that I thought I was going to die while doing that work. But for the Burger Bar boys, I remember... We'd gathered evidence against 96 people, the six main gangsters of the Burger Bar Boys, plus 90 of their backup team, the sex workers, the runners, all of the people involved in the operation. And I thought, wow, this is going to sweep the town clean. And we had hundreds of cops brought in from different constabularies. And I remember speaking to the intelligence officer who was keeping his ear to the ground as to the impact. And he said, yep, we managed to interrupt the drug supply in the town for a full two hours. Two hours. Now, I don't know for certain that it's the Burger Bar Boys' infamous rivals, the Johnson crew, that took up that opportunity that we'd created for them. However, it's the same at every level, in every nation, all over the world. The police never reduce the size of the market. They only change the shape of it. And that changing shape is never for the better. Because where you create a gap in the market, you more often than not 
just increase the violence where people compete over that gap. The police never reduce the size of the market. So everything that I did, working over, undercover, had no impact on the drug markets whatsoever. No drugs policing does. But it's worse than futile. It's actively sharpening the sword of organised crime. It sharpens the sword of organised crime. It makes things worse. So was legalising it the only answer? Taking back control is, yes, it is the only answer. Legal regulation. We need to take control of the drug markets. And it's not just me saying this. It's not just my experiences. I'm part of a growing international movement called the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. In the UK, we're known as Leap UK. And we advocate for taking control away from organised crime to make our communities safer. So for cannabis, that would be illegal. For adult use cannabis, it would be a legal controlled market, licensed outlets. For heroin, it would mean bringing control back to doctors with prescription pads rather than children dealing, as we do in the UK, through county lines. We have to take control because with every passing year, the situation in our communities is getting more dangerous, more people are dying, and every single death from drugs is a preventable death because regulation protects people, prohibition doesn't. Neil's book about his time as a police officer is Drug Wars, the terrifying inside story of Britain's drug trade. Neil Woods, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Moncrief, weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.